It is Saturday, April 17th, 2021. I'm Kevin Williams. This is the LDS Life Podcast. I know I said I'd do a podcast last week. Well, I was on vacation last week, and I just did not have time to do the podcast before I went on a vacation. And I recorded the podcast last night and ran into some technical difficulties. So I apologize for being late, but I am here. And we're going to talk about a few things. We're going to talk a little bit about my vacation to Idaho. We are also going to talk about some conference talks that stuck out to me. And I also want to talk to you about Mark Hoffman. Because I did see the Netflix documentary, uh, Murder Among the Mormons. Very good documentary. And I have some thoughts about that because I've also read the book Salamander. So we'll get into a few things. Now, a couple of business items I want to take care of real quick. You can contact me, Kevin W. at LDSLifePodcast.com. That's Kevin W. at LDSLifePodcast.com. You can also reach us, uh, reach me on Facebook at LDS Life Podcast. You can go ahead and like the page, and you'll get the latest posts on there. Also, I've been asked lately, why don't you do the podcast on YouTube? Well, I've thought about it, but I have a dilemma. I don't think you're going to want to see a picture of me, not because I'm ugly, but because every time I'm doing the podcast, I'm usually twirling things in my hand to keep me awake and to keep my mind stimulated. It's a weird thing, but I oftentimes twirl things in my hands, even if I'm out with friends or whatever. It's a stimulation thing. I don't understand it. I don't think anybody understands it. It's just one of those things I do to keep my mind stimulated. It's it's weird that some people call it a blindism. You know, blind, a lot of blind people rock back and forth. I do that too. Not so much... In public, I'm more out to fidget with things in public. But, yeah, it happens. I don't understand how it works. I don't think anyone understands it. But the point is, if if I were to video this podcast, it would look very distracting if I was fidgeting with things in my hand while doing the podcast. What I have thought about doing, though, is putting this on YouTube and just have a blue background picture because I've actually tried this. I made a YouTube channel just as an experimentation. It's not the LDS Live podcast. It's actually the Blind Conservative. I have a couple videos up there right now. And I'm not too afraid of YouTube taking me down because I don't. as far as I know, I don't have any followers on that channel. But what I did do, just as an experiment, is I actually converted the MP3 into video format. And what it did is it put a blue picture on the screen when you launch the uh, video that I put up there. I I think I put up two or three videos up there just to see what it was like creating a YouTube channel because I'd never done it before and I wanted to get, I wanted to create it from a blind person's perspective. Wasn't too bad actually. It was just converting the MP3 into the video. It was through Microsoft Movie Maker. So I've thought about doing that but then I keep wondering Well, people want to see me. So that's why I haven't put anything up there on YouTube. So I wanted to get that out of the way. But let's start out with the podcast. I went on a vacation 
to the Boise, Idaho area about a week ago, a little over a week ago. And I want to bring up this vacation because two significant things happened while I was on vacation. Number one, somebody called me that I had not heard from since 1998 as far as his voice. I mean, I've heard from him on Facebook and we've Facebook messaged each other before I went down to Idaho. Because remember, I am from here in Billings, Montana. So when I went down to Idaho, uh, he already had my number, so he gave me a call. It was actually good to hear his voice again. And yes, his voice has changed quite a bit, or a little bit anyway, since I saw him back in 1998. But I want to bring this up because I have thought seriously about changing or getting rid of my Facebook account. I really have thought about it. And it's because of all the censorship going on with social media. It's because of a lot of things happening. And I do not like the way that the big tech has been censoring people and trying to act like they're the government. We know that they're in bed with the government. But I feel like having Facebook and Twitter and all these social networking apps, I'm just adding to the problem because I'm supporting something that is, in my opinion, hindering with free speech. But on the other hand, let's be honest. Facebook is a way of communication now. And we're in a society where if you don't have Facebook, something's wrong with you. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose, and by the way, I'm not dating anybody. I don't go to singles websites. I don't go to any of them. I'm just using this as an example. If I went to a singles website, plentyoffish.com, ldssingles.com, eHarmony, any of these websites, Matchmaker, you name it, you find someone attractive, you like their profile, and so you start corresponding with that person over whatever dating website you're using. Then the time comes where you think, I should meet this person. And you look up that individual. Uh-oh. That individual does not have a Facebook account or any social networking account for that matter. So what happens? You become suspicious. Is that person even real? That's where we have gotten today in our society. People will use Facebook to find out who exactly you are. Now, if you're like me, I have my Facebook on private settings, so not just anybody can go in and look at it. The most they might be able to find is my profile. You know, my profile picture. But even that is a clue. So we've gotten to the point where if you don't have Facebook, something's wrong with you. How are you going to look up somebody, and especially in my situation, if I ever choose to get back into the dating scene, which we're going to talk about single life here in a few minutes. But if I choose to get back into the dating scene, and I don't find somebody on Facebook that I've been corresponding to on one of these single sites, my red flags are going to go up about that person. Now, 
I personally know two people who do not have a Facebook account, nor do they have, as far as I know, any social networking account, which I find rather odd. But that's their choice. But just know that they might be doing themselves a great disservice should they choose to go on a dating app or go on a date with somebody or whatever. I bring this up because two people, these two people that I know are single. So that's one reason I decided not to get rid of my Facebook account. The other reason is Facebook is a great way to get connected with somebody. Facebook has gotten me reconnected with people I never thought I would talk to again unless 20, 30, 40 years went down the road. And maybe I saw them at a church event across the country or some regional thing. Or possibly somehow they Googled my name and found out my email address. So I have to give Facebook for that, including the person who called me up while I was in Idaho. And you know what? Over this last month, I have learned something. It's something that I've always known, but it's one thing to know something, but it's another to actually not just have it in your mind, but to ingrain it into your heart. You know, there's a scripture in Isaiah that talks about a change of mind and a change of heart. The older I get, the more I believe that scripture. It's one thing to know what I've learned, but it's another thing to really imply it, to really apply it to your life. And like I said, to have it ingrained in your heart. And that is this. There's good and bad everywhere. Let me give you an example. I have a friend whose daughter is on a mission to Portland, Oregon, a very liberal city. Some would even call it leftist. I'll just use the word liberal because I think more people can deal with the word liberal. Leftist has a whole different meaning of its own, and I don't really enjoy using that word, especially on a podcast like this. So I'll just use the word liberal. And you know, if you've been following the news, especially in the Portland area, there's been a lot of rioting and crime. And yet, my friend's daughter loves her mission. My friend told me she's in a very conservative area in Beaverton. And I was kind of surprised. I really sometimes wonder if there's any conservatives in the Portland area. Uh, apparently so, in Beaverton. <laughs> I know uh, suburbia, though, is pretty conservative in Portland, but still. I guess you can definitely go to Beaverton. But my friend also said that uh, her daughter has been to downtown Portland and does a lot of service projects in the Portland, you know, in Portland itself and in the Portland area. Now, my friend is pretty conservative, possibly more than me, actually, and that's fine. You know, I, I have friends that are more conservative than me. I am pretty conservative, though. I have friends that are probably even more so than me, and some that aren't, that are probably just a little bit more liberal-leaning than me. So it occurred to me that there's good and bad everywhere. And that's the conversation I had with a friend of mine who has a daughter on, her, on a mission to the Portland area. And then this came up with Facebook. 
with me and the person I got in touch with, who was uh, my former young men's president and blazer teacher, Blazer B, back then when I was 11 and 12 years old. This is back before the church made the policy that if you're 12 years old in a given year, you automatically get the priesthood. So what happened is in 1991, I moved to Boise. This individual was my blazer teacher, and then I went to blazers, uh, blazer B class when I was 12. Uh, just waiting to age out of that and get into the deacon's quorum at 13. Well, I was in, no, I was aging out, getting ready to go to the 13 and four, uh, 13 year old Sunday school class. That's right, because I did go to deacon's quorum. When I was 12, but I went to Blazer's, uh, Blazer B class, which was kind of our Sunday school. And then, of course, I aged out of Blazer B and went into the Sunday school class, the 13-year-old class. 13 and 14-year-olds. That's what it was. So, it was nice to get a hold of this particular person. And after the conversation, we had a good I think two and a half hour conversation or something like that. It was a long conversation. It was a good conversation. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad it I'm glad we had a two and a half hour conversation. But after I the conversation I hung up and I really occurred to me at that point I should not get rid of my Facebook account in spite of what's going on, in spite of all the censorship. And I was reminded that there's good and bad everywhere. There's good and bad in Los Angeles. There's good and bad in Florida, where it's a pretty conservative state. There's good and bad in Montana. Yes, there's even good in New York City and New York State. Actually, I've been to Buffalo. There's a lot of good people. There's good and bad everywhere. That's the message I think I learned more than anything so far this month. The other thing that I did in Idaho is I decided not to take my cell phone everywhere I go. This was a pretty big decision for me because I've gotten so tied to, with my cell phone and we've gotten so entrenched of, oh, what if so-and-so is trying to get a hold of me? I can't live without my cell phone. And we've done it to ourselves, whether it's knowingly or not. And I'm actually surprised that I am starting to have this mentality of thought because I am very much pro-telecommunications. I'm very much into telecommunications. I had an interest in telecommunications... When I was, it's probably starting when I was four years old. I remember picking up the phone, and my mom was in the kitchen, or in the dining room, watching TV. We had our phone in the dining room as well, which was connected to the kitchen. You went into the kitchen, and then you kept going straight ahead. You get to the dining room. It wasn't a formal dining room. It was just one of those dining rooms that was connected to the kitchen. So, I picked up the phone, and it was an old princess phone. 
with the rotary dial on the phone. Not on the wall, but on the phone. And for those of you that don't know how the old phones worked, you would, they were, there would be pulses. So you'd have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 0. And you'd put your finger on one of those numbers, which I like to call them pulses, because if you cranked the number 5, you'd get 5 pulses. 7, you'd get 7, so on. So, And I didn't know this at the time, but I put my finger on the number 0. I just knew... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, zero, and then there was a little bar that separated the one from the zero. So I put my finger on zero and cranked it and let go. I heard the phone ring at the other end, and somebody got on and said, Operator, may I help you? And I said, Hi, I just had breakfast and told her about what I was doing that day and she seemed very glad to hear from me. Of course, it probably wasn't too often that a little kid would call the operator. And I told my mom what I'd just done. I said, Mom, if I dial one number on here, I get a person. I didn't understand the whole thing. I just knew that if I dialed zero, I would get a person. And I remember later that day... It was in the afternoon, late afternoon, I think. My mom wasn't there. It was just me and my oldest sister. I did the same thing. I picked up the phone and dialed zero. And like I said, I didn't realize it was zero until a few years, I don't know, about a year later. Probably even more than that when I started understanding the phone operators and all that. But anyway, I realize now I dialed zero. And I just happened to remember where I put my finger on the princess phone. And an operator came on, and I told her what I was doing and that I'd had a nap and things like that. And she kind of yelled, raised her voice at me and said, you're not supposed to be playing with the phone like this. She kind of scared me, so I hung up. <laughs> Never did it again. <laughs> but that was my start of being interested in telecommunications. I still, like I said, have a heavy interest in telecommunications. As a matter of fact, in spite of all the censorship, in spite of all things happening, I actually have a very optimistic viewpoint about the telecom industry. I think things are going to get better than they are right now. Things have already gotten better since 1984 when I was four years old. Yeah, we're going to have problems. Yeah, we're going to have to deal with censorship, but it I can't help but think that there might be a way around all this at, you know, uh, at some point. I just have a very optimistic view about the telecom industry. So for me to, to, not, to, to make a conscious decision not to carry my phone at certain places or bring it with me was a pretty big step. So my sister and I went on a drive in Idaho, and I purposely left my phone behind because it was on the charger anyway. But then we were going out to dinner, my two sisters and I, and a few other folks. And I said, wait, I'll be right back. And my, one of my sisters said, what are you doing? And I, I said, I'm leaving my phone here. Let me tell you, it was kind of nice not to have my phone. I didn't have to worry about texting. I didn't have to worry about notifications or any of that. 
I could just enjoy dinner and have a good conversation, which I always do anyway, but the phone was not a distraction. The only problem was if I wanted to look up something or hear a song, I would reach into my pocket and realize, oh, yeah, my phone's not there. I forgot I'd left it behind. <laughs> it's just one of those instant habits. So I would encourage you, if you can, leave your phone behind when you go out to dinner or something like that, if you can. I realize sometimes it's not realistic because maybe, you know, your kid's trying to get a hold of you on a weekend or something, or your son or daughter wants to get a hold of you on a Friday, Saturday night to have them pick them up or something like that. But if you can, I would encourage you to leave your phone behind. It's just like when I was in high school. We didn't have cell phones. Well, some people did. Cell phones were just starting to become normalized when I was a junior and senior in high school. For the most part, we didn't have them as high school students. I knew some people that had pagers, and I knew, I think, one or two people that did have self, uh, cell phone in high school. But for the most part, we didn't have them. And so it's, it's just like me being in high school. You know, I'd leave without a phone and come back and check the answering machine to see if anyone's left me a message. Well, it wasn't that different. I left my phone behind uh, when it was time to go out to dinner. And I came back to see if I had any voicemail or texts. Try it sometime. You might like it. It's good to leave your phone behind on occasion. I'm saying this as someone that is very interested and very much pro-telecommunications. Very much so. But I'm realizing as I get older, there's a time and a place. And like I said, we've gotten so embedded with our technology, I don't think we realized what we were doing. It was just so nice that we could call anybody anywhere. The other thing, too, I want to get into before I get into uh, conference talks is I did have a birthday when I was in Idaho. <clears throat> Actually, I came back on my birthday, April 11th. I am now 41 years old. So let's talk about some conference talks. The first one I'm going to start out with, with Jeffrey R. Holland. Being in, uh, he talked about the economy of abundance of, of uh, genuine, being genuine and spreading goodness. Our economy of genuine and goodness and abundance. He talked about Jesus Christ administering the sacrament before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Then he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to bleed every pore of his body for three hours, accounting for every single sin. Then he went to the cross to get crucified. And sometime during that, you know, he uh, talked to his disciples and apostles, basically saying, let not your heart be troubled, I will not let you be comfortless. And let's see, I've got the quote right here. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. I will not leave you comfortless. 
I will come to the, I will come to this, or I will come to you. Sorry, my Braille note messed up there. I will come to you. Peace I leave with, peace I leave with you, my peace, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth. Give I, give I unto you. Let your heart not be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That was a quote from the scripture that Jeffrey R. Holland quoted. You know, I have something to say about that. I can't imagine. I don't know if any of us can comprehend exactly the pain that our Savior went through, unless maybe you've seen it in a movie, <clears throat> maybe The Passion of the Christ or something. I can't imagine how painful it would be to bleed three hours and not to have God with you because the Spirit left him. It had to. The Savior had to know pain. The Savior had to know sin. He had to ascend below all things. Now, that doesn't mean he went out and did drugs and recovered and all that, but he had to ascend below all things. One of those was to bleed and account for every single sin that has ever happened on this earth. In fact, some would even say that the real suffering did not happen when he bled. The real suffering happened when the Spirit left him, when God could not be with him. That is a very valid point. But even more than that, what the Savior went through on the cross, I cannot comprehend. All I can do is imagine just how painful it was. And let me tell you an experience I had. I think I may have shared this on one of my podcasts, but I'll share it here again. I felt a Joshua tree once. This was at the Bundy Ranch. <clears throat> and it was sharp. I'm glad uh, Cliven told me to be very careful because the tree was very prickly. Oh, yes, it was. Oh, yeah. I stuck my hand out as he was driving along the road and touched the Joshua tree. And my first thought was, gosh, I wonder just how sharp these thorns were that they, uh, they crowned his head with. I'll bet you they were more painful than that Joshua tree that I felt. Actually, I wasn't hurt by the Joshua tree because it was... He warned me that it was very prickly, so I just gently touched it. But if I was not warned about it or I just stumbled across one of those, that'd be very painful. I'm amazed that Jesus Christ was able to converse with people on the cross. I'm amazed that he was able to forgive those who crucified him because they had a job to do. And they knew not what they did. So I think it's I think it's amazing that he was able to converse with people. Also, the way that the cross was set up, I had someone describe this to me at one point, and I can't remember the exact description, but 
basically, when you're on the cross, the way it was set up is you were put in such a way that when you breathed, you actually had to get up and breathe and then get back down. I think it was somehow you just lifted yourself up on the cross. You know, you lifted your body up with your hands or whatever and breathed. It was one of the, it's it's the, the most I can relate to, you know, if you have a sore throat and it's really sore, it kind of knocks you out a little bit when you swallow. Very painful. You actually have to think about when you're going to swallow to prepare yourself for the pain. Well, times that probably by about 20 or 30. And you'll get, I think you'll understand what the Savior went through. And I'm grateful that he atoned for our sins. President Holland also went on to talk about how even the faithful have been having a lot of trials. And I think he referred to the pan well, he referred to the pandemic, but it goes beyond that. I know people who are having serious trials right now, certain families that I never thought would have had certain trials that certain people have told me about. Just because I knew these people from a long time ago. And it's not that they're faithless. It's just that they're having trials I didn't think they would ever have, ever. You just have to know the people that I'm talking about. Uh, Jeffrey R. Holland also went on to say that we cannot afford to not live the gospel in private or public. And he also talked about how it was heartbreaking to him to see a lot of sexual transgression in music, in movies. And I would add in music, you know, the, a lot of sexual innuendos. I'm not going to tell you what kind of music to listen to. I made lots of mistakes in that myself. I'm not going to get preachy about music. But let's face it, there is music out there that has a lot of sexual innuendos. Quite a bit, actually. And he talked about that. He also made a pretty profound comment about profanity and sacredness. Basically, he said, uh, sacred is becoming too common and holy is becoming too profane. Or, yeah, too profane. Wickedness never was happiness. When the dance is over, the piper must pay. Let me tell you, folks. Wickedness never was happiness. I'm not going to lie. There are certain sins that are... Uh, that are very serious, that are fun to commit. I'm not going to lie. But you feel like crap after you committed them. I know from experience. You feel great in the moment. And then after some time goes by, you think, what did I just, what did I do? That was stupid. And then you feel like crap. Now you would say, well, a lot of it's because of what you've been taught as a kid. Yeah, that's true. 
But I also think that when you've been taught certain things in the gospel, and when you mess up, you are held more accountable. Because the, Bible, the Doctrine and Covenants does say, where much is given, much is expected. Then Jeffrey R. Holland went on to say that, you know, again, keep in mind, this was the Saturday before Easter. So he went on to say, Tomorrow is Easter, the Passover. Let's pass over good, goodness. It was a very profound talk. I actually thought that I needed to discuss that talk. I went through a whole bunch of talks, and I figured as long as this podcast is going to be, I can't, cause, I can't possibly talk about every single talk. So that was the one of them that I chose to pick out. The other one that I want to discuss with you is Neil Anderson's talk about being children of our Heavenly Father, among other things. He first acknowledged that we've been going through a lot of trials based on the pan because of the pandemic. <clears throat> he also acknowledged that lives have been lost because of COVID-19. And he gave some examples. He talked about a gentleman who was the state patriarch of Congo, of the Congo stake, and how he was a medical doctor and was very generous with his talents. He also talked about a woman in Ecuador who converted to the gospel at age 34. And the way that her family described her, she was full of a lot of energy. And when she was getting ready to pass away, her family sang her her favorite hymn, I Know That My Redeemer Lives. What a tender moment that must have been. Now, I'm not a very emotional person, but something like that, having been there in person, or just seeing it, probably would bring tears to my eyes. Which says a lot for me, because I'm not a very emotional person. I'm very logical and very factual-oriented. Anyway, Pres uh, Neil, a. Anderson Neil Anderson went on to discuss another person who passed away. That was a father. Then he went on to talk to talk about. Uh, he went on to quote something that President Nelson said: "Our tears of sorrow turn into tears of anticipation." I sometimes wonder what it will be like when we pass on to the next life, what it will be like to meet our parents, to meet extended family, perhaps brothers and sisters that died before you did, maybe friends, maybe extended family that knew who you were on this earth but didn't meet you for health reasons or whatever. I'm curious to see what my great-grandmother's like. As far as I know, I never met her. If I did, I, was, I must have been a little baby. I remember going to her funeral. But what an experience that would be, passing away on to the next life, meeting my great-grandmother, meeting my great-grandfather on my dad's side, who my dad told me I would probably like. Although, not to degrade my great-grandfather on my dad's side. I'm sure I would like him. 
But I'm more interested in meeting my great or my uh, grandfather on my mother's side, who I know I'd met before, but I do not remember him because he passed away when I was two years old. In fact, I the the closest I have come to ever identifying with him is I heard his voice a few decades later on an old tape cassette. So I now know what he used to sound like. <clears throat> and he sounds a lot like one of my uncles, to be honest. But what a day that would be. Going back to President Nelson's quote, uh, tears of sorrow will turn into tears of anticipation. Neil Anderson also went on to talk about abortion and told women not to get themselves in compromising positions where they would be, you know, they might be forced to make that decision. And I think he was talking to mostly teenagers. You know, don't get yourself into positions where you would... Uh, be pregnant and people tell you to get an abortion because it's the right thing to do. That's what he was saying. And I, I assume when he was saying that, he was talking to primarily teenage women and perhaps young adults who are women, young women, you know, young adult women. He also went on to give a, kind of a cool story. Didn't start out is a good story, but it ended up being a good story. He talked about a girl named Emily. Her parents were not married, and Emily's mother was 16 years old. And Emily's birth mother decided to give Emily up for adoption. Emily's adopted parents... <coughs> decided, you know, Emily's adoptive parents taught her the gospel, taught her faith in the Savior, and obviously the difference between right and wrong. Two decades, uh, two decades ago, Emily and Neil Anderson's daughter, uh, Neil Anderson's grandson, Christian, got married in the temple and now have a wonderful family, a wonderful little family of their own. He also talked about a girl named Rebecca. Rebecca and her husband live in Utah. They, have four, they had four kids. And after the October conference of 2011, they decided to have another kid because the Spirit told Rebecca that they needed to have another kid. <clears throat> no, I do not think this is a Saturday's Warrior uh, scenario where Rebecca promised this kid that, she, you know, the kid would be born. I just think it was the Spirit telling her to have another kid. So they did. And three years later, they had another kid. So now we went from, they went from four to six kids. The reason why this story is significant, though, is because Rebecca had health problems during the, during and uh, during the pregnancy and the time that she was giving birth to her children. And her children, I guess, are doing just fine. I didn't hear any, th any complaints. 
And so it just goes to show how important bringing children into the world is. He also referenced President Hinckley's talk that he gave about women becoming nurturers. They're also safeguards to, these, to their children. Nurturers. He also mentioned President Hinckley talking about how women become anchors of their family. That is very true. My mother was definitely the anchor of our family. My dad was traveling an awful lot when I was a kid. Even into my high school years, my dad was gone a lot. Not as much as before, but he was gone, oh, probably two or three times out of the month. So my mom definitely held down the family, grounded us. I'm sure it was not easy, but she did it. My mom would be the one helping me with my homework at night. My dad did some, but my mom did a whole lot more. My mom would make us school lunches, particularly me, because I was the most vocal about how nasty the food was at school. So when President Hinckley said that the mothers are anchors of the family, that's a true statement. I know that there are more women out there today that are breadwinners for the family for financial reasons or whatever, but I still think that's true. Elder uh, M. Russell Ballard gave a talk about singles. He said that there is a place for you in the church, and just because you're single does not matter about what your status is in the church. Your status is not based on or your, uh, your worth in the church is basically what he said in many words, is not based on marital status. He also encouraged singles to stay active in the church, saying that we need your voice, skills, and talents, and we also need you to stay witnesses. He also encouraged state presidents and bishops to get rid of some of the old connotations that that we've had about single people in the church and how we may have caused them harm. And I find it very interesting, by the way, that Elder M. Russell Ballard even talked about this for a variety of reasons. Number one, he is now sensitive to the issue. Not that he wasn't before, but I should say he's more sensitive about the issue now because his wife died, and he even mentioned that in his, in his conference talk. Since his wife died, he's become very lonely. He mentioned that in his talk. He also, I also think that because he's single, he's starting to relate to what a lot of the single people feel. I thought it was an interesting statistic, although I'm not surprised, but I thought it was interesting that over half of the members of the church are either widowed, divorced, or not yet married. And that's a whole other subject in and of itself, isn't it? But the other reason I find this very significant is because there's an article written in the Liahona this month that talks about single life, written by a single person himself. In fact, I may very well do a podcast on that article the next uh, next week. 
And this time it would be next week. I might just do a whole article on that and why I think there's a lot of single people in the church. I've done a podcast like that before, but it was way back. So maybe it's time I revisit that topic again. I think it is. I also wonder, you know how I feel about singles wards. If you don't, go back and listen to the podcast about singles wards and why I think we need to get rid of them and why I think they've done the singles a great disservice. And by the way, I'm going to elaborate more on that next week too because I got into a debate with somebody about it and I might bring that debate out here on the podcast with me and the other person. It would be a respectful debate. We're not going to call each other names. We're not going to talk over each other. Yeah, the discussion might get a little lively, but we're not going to call each other names. We're not going to talk over each other. We're not going to say, I'm right and you're wrong. Although, you could certainly make your own decision after hearing the debate if this friend of mine agrees to come on. Because her and I have a very strong disagreement, but I also appreciate her perspective, and I think her perspective needs to be heard on my podcast because it's a very sensitive issue. But I still maintain the opinion that we need to get rid of singles wards. Just get rid of them. But I wonder, with uh, the church writing this article in the Liahona from a single adult to the survey that came out amongst 18 to 35-year-olds, and M. Russell Ballard giving the talk, I wonder if the church is gearing up for something. Are they gearing up to get rid of singles wards? I don't know. Are they talking about this now to prepare for a falling out if that happens? I don't know. But it sure makes me wonder, especially in that scripture, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses shall all my words be established. I have to wonder. You know, we had three things happen. President President, uh, M. Russell Ballard's talk. We also had that article that I'd mentioned in the Liahona and the survey all around the same time. You have to wonder if something's coming. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying it's quite possible. The fact that this issue is even being addressed is obviously a concern with the general authorities as it should be. I really liked that talk. I thought uh, I could relate to it very well. And I want to talk about some of my own experiences as a single person. So yes, I am going to talk about that article in the Liahona. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I will definitely summarize it and give you my opinions on it. Because I definitely have opinions, as I seem to have an opinion about everything. At least that's what people tell me. And yes, I am an opinionated person. In fact, I remember when I was younger, people told me, you should, make a, you should be an attorney. I actually came close to going to law school once, but decided at the last minute I didn't want to do it. But that's for another discussion. But I've had several people when I was younger tell me I should be a lawyer. Elder Rasband gave a very interesting talk in the Sunday afternoon session. Very interesting. I want to talk about that and relate it to my own experience with miracles. 
because I actually think this is a pretty important talk. He talked about miracles, but the one, the one thing I want to talk about in this talk, though, is the miracle that he had in Goshen, Utah. Goshen seems to be becoming the uh, miniature version of Hollywood. That's where they film the scripture films at and the chosen. Makes me wonder if they'll film other things there. The Elder Rasban discussed they were going to do, him and his wife were going to do a Q&A on LDS. Or, or just, no, they were going to do a Q&A with young adults. And it was supposed to be in upstate New York, but because of COVID, they had to cancel it in upstate New York. And so they went to Goshen, Utah. Unfortunately, the power went out when they were supposed to get on the air because remember they were doing it over the church satellite system and a whole bunch of other platforms. And right when the uh, right when the event was supposed to happen, the power went out. So there was somebody bought a generator, somebody had a generator and they thought that it could power all the equipment and it didn't. So the Rasband walked away amongst everybody's tears and prayed for a miracle, basically telling our Heavenly Father that usually he doesn't pray for miracles, or he rarely does, but this time he wants a miracle. And he said, if it's thy will, then the fireside must continue. And it did. The power went on. Seven minutes after six o'clock, keep in mind, a lot of these church events do begin at 6 o'clock Mountain Time on Sunday. So, it began. It began a little late, but it began. When the event was over, and Elder Rasband and his wife were driving home, he got a text from President Nelson saying, I heard the power went out, but we prayed for a miracle. Isn't that interesting? So it wasn't just Elder Rasband, it was President Nelson and possibly a whole host of other people. Maybe some people at the event were praying for a miracle as well. I want to talk about my uh, personal experiences that I've had with miracles. In 2015, it was in uh, it was uh, the beginning of August of 2015, I had just gotten off a UTA bus in Salt Lake headed to the Fashion Place Mall. I crossed one of the streets. I can't remember what street I crossed. It was the intersection of 64th and Steed Street. But I crossed one of the streets and made it fine across to the other side. Now, some people say, well, Kevin, how do you cross busy streets like that being a blind person? Well, I listen to parallel traffic. Once the parallel traffic goes and I hear that there's no cars turning out in front of me right on reds is what we call them, then I'm good to go. I usually count for about two or three seconds after the parallel surge begins so that I can make sure cars or anything like that are not turning out in front of me. And then I just cross the street and make sure that the parallel traffic is parallel to me, whether it's parallel to my right or my left side. So I got across one of the streets fine, and then I was crossing the other one and hit an island and, real, and could not find, a lot of times when you walk across streets and you hit an island, that usually means that 
there's a light, a traffic light, and you're supposed to hit that button, that walk button, and it'll, you'll know when to go. Again, because of parallel traffic. So, that's what I did. Except for when I got on the island, I could not find the light post. I was not in a panic, because I didn't hear any cars coming at me. I still heard a bunch going parallel to me. But I couldn't find the light. I was getting a little annoyed, because I knew that at some point the, car, the light would turn green for drivers. And... What if a car hit, got up onto the island? I don't know if it would have, but it's possible. Or I'd be stuck out there for a while. But about 30 seconds passed. <clears throat> maybe 10, maybe 5. Somebody came up and asked where I was going. I told him. And he said, do you want to ride? Usually I don't accept rides from strangers, but I felt very good about this individual, so I said, sure. So he drove me to the Fashion Place Mall. It was about, I don't know, a block and a half away. Not very far. I told him exactly where in the mall I needed to go. And he dropped me off at the corner bakery, which is in the parking lot of the Fashion Place Mall. This is where things get very interesting. After eating my dinner there, I think I went to the Apple store, I do believe. And then as I was getting ready to leave the mall, the person called me back because we exchanged phone numbers before we left. Before he dropped me off, he gave me his phone number. I gave him mine. So it's interesting that right when I was leaving the mall, he called me. And asked me if I needed to ride elsewhere. And I said, yeah, can you take me to the track station? He said he could. He told me just to meet him outside at the mall parking lot. And so I did. Well, once I got into his car, his truck, he asked me where I was from. Actually, once we got out of the parking lot, he asked where I was from. And I said, Eastern Oregon. And he said, where? And I said, Eastern Oregon. And he said, where in Eastern Oregon? I said, Ontario. He said, oh, I'm from, that. I'm from Ontario. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. I didn't believe him at the time. So I asked who his dad was, and he told me who his dad was. I didn't know his dad, but I'd heard the name. Because my dad had talked about him before. <clears throat> so I said, oh, yeah, my dad was good friends with your dad. I've heard about your dad before. And then he explained that uh, he left and his family moved to Baker, where I believe he was a junior in high school or something like that. So his family moved to Baker. Part of the reason was so that he could play base uh, basketball. Because I guess he wasn't getting a fair shake of things in Ontario. So his dad decided to move the family to Baker so that his son could play basketball for the high school and get a better chance. I'm not sure if it actually panned out or not. Never asked him. But I thought it was interesting. Here I was crossing the street, 
trying to cross the street at 64th and State Street to get to the Fashion Place Mall. Lo and behold, someone asked me if I want to ride. Then I'm finished doing whatever I needed to do at the mall that day. This individual called me back and asked, and I, he came to get me at the mall parking lot to drive me to the track station. And he asked, where are you from? And eventually I told him Ontario, Oregon. And he said, oh, I'm from there. Found out his dad's name and I found out his dad and my dad were good friends. Matter of fact, uh, his dad, or uh, the guy who picked me up, he gave me... <clears throat> I think he gave his dad my number. I can't remember if he gave me his dad's number or not, but I, I know he gave his dad my number because his dad called me later that day, and we had a conversation. I guess he knew me when I was a little baby, which makes sense because I think he moved. Uh, I think he moved a few. I think he moved shortly after I was born. If not, he definitely heard about me. In any case, I think he did know me when I was a baby. <clears throat> so, I find that a miracle. My dad was able to get in touch with his long-lost friend. Unfortunately, my dad's not the greatest at keeping in touch with people. So, unfortunately, that relationship didn't last as long as it should have, in my opinion. But I think that was a miracle that occurred. I think Heavenly Father wanted, for whatever reason, my dad and this individual to get back in touch again. You know, rather they didn't keep in touch after the fact that much, well, there's a thing called free agency. So, was it a coincidence? No, I think it was a miracle in this case. You know, things like this seem to happen a lot. I seem to run into a lot of people who I don't know personally, but they know somebody that I know. It seems to happen an awful lot. Not so much up here in Montana, but in Utah. For some reason in Utah, who I've been able to run into a lot of people who either they know someone that I know, or I have known them from a long time ago. But that, what I just explained to you, was definitely a miracle. The last talk that I'll discuss, and then I want to talk about Mark Hoffman and we'll end this podcast. President Oaks gave a talk about the U.S. Constitution and how us as Latter-day Saints have a duty to defend it. And about how the U.S. Constitution was inspired by God. He gave five points where he believed the U.S. Constitution was divinely inspired. But before I go there, he also made sure, quote, J. Reuben Clark's talk that the Constitution is a growing document. Now, I would have liked for him to expand on that a little bit, because I think when people say the Constitution is a living and breathing document, I'm not so sure that I believe that. But when President Oaks quoted J. Reuben Clark that our Constitution is growing to meet the demands, the times and demands, I wish he was more specific. And what I mean by that is this. President Oaks gave a very good example of how the Constitution needed to meet demands. 
And he talked about the need to put an amendment in the Constitution ending slavery. Also putting an amendment in there to give women the right to vote. But unfortunately, and this is why I wish President Oaks would have been more consistent, or not consistent, would have been more specific. Because you hear people saying, oh, the Constitution is just a GD piece of paper. Or the Constitution is a living and breathing document. This doesn't affect any amendments, and I'm particularly talking about Joe Biden's speech. This doesn't affect the Second Amendment. Yeah, it does. Oh, the Constitution's a living and breathing document. We can change it anytime we want. That's why I think President Oaks should have been more specific. But I'm glad that he did put those two examples in there, because when he quoted that quote, it made me cringe, quite frankly. So I'm glad he used those two examples, but I think he, I wish he would have been a little bit more specific and talked about more examples of where people might try to say the Constitution is living and breathing. Oh, those amendments don't apply anymore, or something like that. But all in all, it was a good talk. So let me read to you the five amendments here that President Oaks discussed. The sovereign power to the people. In other words, separation of powers. And this was actually discussed. I think giving more power to the people is what this meant, because this was actually discussed centuries before it actually happened. It just so happened that America actually did it. Our forefathers actually did it. A few centuries after the four a few centuries after philosophers discussed it. The second thing that was divine, and I believe uh, President Oaks when he says this, the division of delegated powers between the nation and its sovereignties and its sovereignty states. There was an exception to this, and that was the abolishment of slavery and allowing women to vote. But in general, the idea of separating the powers between the state and the government, a very genius idea. So one state could have a certain set of laws, the other state could have another. That way it would keep things balanced. The third divinely inspired thing about the Constitution, the separation of powers between the legislature and the executive authority. Now this actually did happen in England with the king. The, some of the king's powers were taken away. And some of the people who were in England, who were around when the Constitution was formed, actually do remember this happening. This way it was prevented that the president wouldn't make all the decisions. That that power has been badly abused. But that's the way it was supposed to go. The third is branches executive checks on each other. So, in other words, the balance of power, the three branches of government, executive, judicial, and the representatives, Congress. <clears throat> so, Congress, judicial, and the executive branch. The fourth divinely inspired thing about the Constitution 
is the right and guarantees in the Bill of Rights. Then he went on to talk about the First Amendment and how the First Amendment had to happen in order for the gospel to be restored on the earth. And he quoted, and I find it an interesting fact, I didn't think about this, but the gospel was restored about three decades later, which I find very interesting. And I don't find that a coincidence either. In fact, that goes to the fifth divine inspired thing about the United States Constitution, and that is that the Constitution was even able to be written into law. The very fact that it exists, we may be going further away from the Constitution, I believe we are, but the fact that it's still there, the fact that it's still here in what's left of it is a miracle. And I'm actually surprised, and this kind of goes back to Jeffrey R. Holland's talk, but I'm actually surprised that we have not been in a Great Depression or a Third World War since the 30s and 40s. As long as we've been around, I would think, logic would even tell us that we would go through another Depression about 30 to 60 years since 1930. Well, it's been over 60 years since we've had a Great Depression. And while I'm on that topic, Jeffrey R. Holland did say that we are not in a Great Depression, we're not in a world war, but we are in a spiritual war. And the war is not so much our savings account, but what we are lacking spiritually. But the very fact that this Constitution has lasted as long as it has is a miracle, I think. President Oaks also talked about the fact that it is dangerous to be loyal to one specific person. You know what? I've been caught up in this. I've been caught up in the fact where I thought it was, well, you know, I like somebody so much that I felt loyalty to that person. Now, I'd usually channel that on podcasts, and I would usually tone down on it because I didn't want to sound like I was loyal to one person because that one person did things I didn't like either uh, as well. But because I felt that that particular candidate was the best to lead us at the time, I was pretty quick to defend that individual. But I didn't like everything he did. And that the other thing that President Oaks talked about is we should not condemn somebody for voting for a candidate. He even mentioned the fact that it might be painful to vote for a candidate because they don't share our values. But because there's one issue that might be important to us, or three or four issues, and that candidate is supportive of those issues, that's why you would vote for that candidate. And yes, I'll get to Elder Dorth in a minute because I know I said some things about him on my last two podcasts. I'll get there. But I thought that was interesting. Now, I don't know if it's true. I actually question just how true this is. But apparently, my parents voted for a Democrat as a, for a governor in Oregon. 
And the reason they did this is because the governor wanted to cut the school budget, which would affect, supposedly affect services for me as a blind person in Oregon. And I have to admit, the services in Oregon for a blind person at the time were much better than Idaho. I know because I lived in both places at the time. I'm talking about the 80s and 90s. I don't know how good they are now in Oregon or Idaho because I'm not there. But I know in the 80s and 90s, the services for blind people were phenomenal in Oregon. Even better than Idaho. Idaho was catching up. But it was taking a while. And I know that my parents were always worried about services being cut. Again, I don't know if it's true that they voted for a Democrat in Oregon. I find it hard to believe because my mom was extremely conservative, even more so than my dad, politically. My dad was pretty conservative, too. But I think my mom was even more conservative politically than my dad. And I'm basing it off of some conversations that we had that my mom and I had behind closed doors and my dad and I had at different times. But if it's true, it just goes to prove Dallin H. Oaks's point Now, as this pertains to Elder Uchtdorf, because I said in the last two podcasts, I don't see how a good member of the church could vote for or donate to Joe Biden. Well, in my personal opinion, that has not changed because I know a little bit about Joe Biden. I know a little bit about the corruption on the Democrats, and it's the Republicans, too. But I know just how in bed Joe Biden has been with China and Hunter Biden on the, in the Ukraine. And I know the Democrats are very much for abortion. You know, they're the ones that are constantly giving money to Planned Parenthood when Planned Parenthood is notorious for abortions. I'm sure Planned Parenthood has done some good things. Like I said, there's good and bad everywhere. I don't doubt that they've done some good in the world. They've also done a lot of bad. But I realize that there are church members, very active church members, that might be politically more liberal than me because of experiences, or maybe they're just in a certain area where liberty is not preached as much as it is here in the United States. Also, uh, President Oaks talked about how the First Amendment has been, I don't want to say taken away, but has been uh, done away with in certain situations to suppress popular or unpopular speech. I thought that was, uh, I, I, he's absolutely right. And he also talked about how the first, how some amendments of the Constitution or how the separation of powers between the state and the federal government have been ignored because of family issues. And I think he was, and this is one of, one of those issues, I wish he would have been more specific. I'm, I'm thinking he was alluding to gay marriages, you know, same-sex marriages. And perhaps other issues. Marriage licenses, going way back. I wish President Oaks would have been more consistent, or not consistent, specific about that issue. 
And I'll tell you what kind of a talk I'd really like to hear. I'd like to hear a talk where somebody gets up there and talks about the Gideonton robbers destroying our country. And not just the Gideonton robbers, but who? Call them out. Call them by name. Who's doing what? You know, President Benson was really good at this. He didn't necessarily call them by name in conference, but he would talk about the Gideonton robbers, and he would talk about communists infiltrating the government. I realize that uh, a lot of people would lose interest and probably tune out of conference, even walk out of conference. But I think we need to hear more of these talks because I think we'd forgotten who these people are. And as much as I liked President Oaks's talk, I would like more of these talks to be very, very specific as far as who is doing what. But I also think President Oaks said some things that needed to be said. I want to talk about a Netflix documentary real quick that I saw about Mark Hoffman while I was on vacation in Idaho. Sorry about the background noise. I've got people in here, but well, that's okay. It's a podcast. Um, I want to talk about uh, Mark Hoffman, uh, Murder Among the Mormons. It's a documentary on Netflix that I saw when I was in Idaho on vacation. I really wish that there could have been six hours to that documentary. It was originally going to be a six-hour documentary. But because the BBC was investing in it, they only wanted a three-hour documentary. It really should have been a six-hour documentary. And I say that because I've actually read Salamander, the book, quite a few times, actually. First time in, in uh, 2003, then I read it again in 2012 and just recently, a year ago, and then again. Just because I could just, you know, so when I saw the movie, or the documentary, Murder Among the Mormons, then I, I could piece it all together. And actually, watching that documentary and reading the book, I understand things a little bit better now. There's also another book out there. It's called Show and Tell by... Teresa, I can't remember her last name, but I I interviewed Brent Ashworth on my last podcast. And I talked about his dealings with Mark Hoffman. And I may bring Brent Ashworth back on again, now that the movie's been out. But a couple things I want to... I think the movie... I think the documentary actually did Steve Christensen justice. Because we really did not know much about him. We knew that he had a very good interest in church history. We knew that he was very into trying to find the truth of these documents. And I'm under the impression, based on what the documentary said, I'm under the impression that Steve Christensen was coming pretty close to figuring out who Mark Hoffman was. That's why he had to get rid of Steve Christensen. It was despicable what he did, but just thinking in the mind of Mark Hoffman, that's why he had to get rid of him. And he obviously had to divert the attention to Gary Sheets so that people would think it had to do something with CFS, which is a company that Steve Christensen worked for that was struggling uh, from a financial standpoint. The third bomb, I believe, was going to Brent Ashworth. 
I believe that Mark Hoffman wanted that third bomb to go to Brent Ashworth so that he would not have to pay the 185000 loan to First Interstate Bank that the General Authority Hugh Pinnock authorized back in the day. Remember, too, he owed Al Rust, a coin dealer, eighty-five grand. Neither First Interstate Bank or Al Rust knew that Mark Hoffman knew, owed the other money. Mark Hoffman, I think, did what he did as far as forging documents for several reasons. Number one, he wanted money, easy money. Mark Hoffman was going to go to medical school, but he decided he could make more in document dealing. Of course, we found out later the documents were forged. Number two, I think Mark Hoffman had a problem with authority, and I know I've read somewhere that he had a problem holding down jobs. I think he had a job in high school, but I thought I'd read somewhere where he, he wasn't able to keep it or something. Number three, he wanted to fool church members and particularly the general authorities. But I think the main reason why he did it, you know, why he was forging documents, is he had a very serious grudge against the church and his family. His family had a skeleton in their closet about polygamy. Mark's great-grandmother was a polygamist. And that was not supposed to be talked about, and the marriage was actually done by somebody in the I think it was, uh, I can't remember who did it. It was some bishop or something. And I think in the, in the, the vault where Mark Hoffman had access to the vault, I think where he had access to the vault in the church headquarters, it said something to the effect of something about how this marriage is not supposed to be made public. In other words, the public's not supposed to know. I think it was a bishop or somebody that married Mark Hoffman's great-grandparents. And they came from polygamous stock. And this was after polygamy was supposed to be done away with in the church. And also, keep in mind, President Grant excommunicated the mission president while he was a mission president for being, uh, for practicing or forming a polygamous marriage, if I remember the story correctly. And that was... Mark Hoffman's grandparents. So there's a lot of hurt feelings, not just with Mark Hoffman, but in the family. But I think it made Mark Hoffman upset that his family was keeping this a secret. Also, Mark lost his testimony of the church when he was 14. He started believing in evolution. And when he tried to have conversations with his dad about evolution, according to the books I've read... His dad was pretty defensive about it and basically wanted to hear nothing of it. And his dad would say, oh, you don't have enough faith or you're reading the wrong books and just got real upset with Mark for even bringing up the topic. This is according to the books that I have read, The Salamander and Murder Among the Mormons. I've read part of that, although The Salamander is much better. The book is called Salamander. Mark Hoffman was very, very smart. He was a genius. He was very deceiving, but the tactics that he used, 
were very smart. For example, when he found the, well, when he forged the Anthon transcript, he bought an old Bible from Salt Lake and put the forged transcript at the end of the Bible and had his wife read the Bible and find it there. So that way it wouldn't come back on him. He could say someone else found it and he made money off of documents that way. But I'll tell you what I liked about the uh, documentary on Netflix. It was very interesting to put voices to the names because now I figured out what Shannon Flint sounded like as business partner. Now at the time, you know, when the documentary was made, which is not too long ago, he sounded very elderly, and he is, but there was, a, there was a little clipping where you heard a younger Shannon Flint. There was also, it was also very interesting to hear the newscasts, and because I'm not from Salt Lake, but I went down there an awful lot as a kid, I recognized some of the voices. Michelle King, Carol Makita, Rod Decker. Rod Decker, by the way, used to do a, radio, a TV show called Take Two on Channel Two, and there was a debate on whether his documents were real or not. This was before we, uh, we discovered that they were forged. I also thought it was very interesting how they interviewed Brent Metcalf and got his side of the story. I thought the movie, I thought the documentary was very fair. I know the church was worried about how it would affect their image. But I thought the documentary was very fair. It was not anti-Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, or four. It just labeled out a bunch of facts. And I know that the buildings were very nostalgic. You know, what people were wearing back in the 80s, the old buildings that were there in Salt Lake. It's just a very fascinating documentary. I was just blown away how Mark Hoffman was so talented and fooling people. What if he used his talents for good? What if he finished medical school and did a lot of cutting-edge research? He could have easily done it. He was brilliant. But because he had such hatred towards the church and his family, it ruined the rest of his life. And I often wonder what Mark is thinking right now in solitary confinement. While I wouldn't even wish that on Mark Hoffman, I realize he bought it on himself and deserves to be there, in my opinion. Because if he ever got out, who's to say he wouldn't do something like that again? That's a pretty serious thing. Murdering two people and blowing himself up. I remember hearing about Mark Hoffman for the first time at the end of 2002. I just heard the name. I had a professor at the Salt Lake Community College. We were talking about schemas and attitudes. And he was talking about how he had a real attitude about organized religion and brought up Mark Hoffman. I didn't know who Mark Hoffman was, but the professor just said, oh, Everybody ran around saying, oh, I believe what Mark Hoffman did was, I believe this was true. What, what Mark found was true. I never heard of him before, so I just kind of discounted it, thinking this is some con artist in Utah. We hear about these people all the time. 
Well, he was a con artist, all right, but I didn't know the, all the details. Then a few days later, a friend of mine from California called me. Kevin, have you heard of Mark Hoffman? Yes, I've heard the name. Well, did you know that he was a document forger? No. Did you know that he forged a bunch of documents to the church? No. Really? So I did a little poking around during that Christmas break. I didn't do it in an internet search because I had other things going on, but I asked people that were much older than me that were around in Salt Lake during the 80s. And yes, they did confirm to me there was a guy that forged documents named Mark Hoffman to the church. And I remember going to school in 2003, just carrying on, wondering about Mark, what he did, but didn't have time to look him up. Then school let out, May of 2003, so I did a lot of poking around on the internet one evening to find out just who this guy was. A book recommendation came across my screen, Salamander. So I got on the phone on the Monday or Tuesday and ordered that book on tape through the National Library Service for Blind People. I'll be honest, that book shook me up. First of all, I was appalled that I didn't know any of this because this is a big story. I realized I'm not from Utah, but I was from Eastern Oregon. There are a lot of LDS people in Eastern Oregon. Tons. How come I didn't hear about it in seminary? How come I didn't hear about it elsewhere? This is a big deal. It also made national news. In fact, there are sound clippings of Tom Brokaw doing national newscasts about bombings in Salt Lake and so forth. Uh, the other thing that shook me up, and I want to explain in my view, how in the world would a general authority be deceived by this? And this is just my mindset at the time. When they think, when they claim to be in touch with God all the time, how in the world could they have been deceived like this? Why didn't God come down and say, listen, uh, President Hinckley, Elder Pennock, I saw you conducting business with Mark. You had better knock it off. He is trying to destroy my church, and I will not let a soul destroy it. If you do any more business, I will strike you down. Because in my mind, that's what I would have done if I were God. But I think, present as I have uh, reconciled this in my own mind years later, I realize the general authorities are human, and I think President Oaks said it best that we cannot be suspicious about everybody who comes into our office. Now, I will say this. I believe, even before Mark Hoffman bombed himself and killed two other people, I believe that the general authorities were becoming suspicious of him because he was not paying back that first interstate bank loan that he kept promising he'd pay back. They keep having to renegotiate, renegotiate. And at one point, Hugh Pennock said, we think, he said to Steve Christensen, we think we might know where those 116 pages, lost pages of the Book of Mormon might be. Because that was a big thing. Now that Mark Hoffman had supposedly found the Anthon transcript, he wanted to know, they wanted to know where this 116 pages of the 
Book of Mormon, the Book of Lehi were, the uh, general authorities. And actually, if you listen to one of the, the podcasts that I did with Brent Ashworth, it goes, he goes into detail about how he caught Mark Hoffman forging that, those, that uh, transcript. Go and listen to that podcast. So that was the big thing, and he said, but we're not going to use, but uh, Hugh Pennock told Steve Christensen, we're not going to use Mark Pennock for this anymore. And I know it was because he couldn't pay back the loan. But let me say something about the salamander, because that was the document that really shook everybody up. <clears throat> in fact, I heard, and I was hoping that this would be in the documentary, but it wasn't. But I know that it was uh, said because I heard a podcast about it. I've done a lot of extensive research on Mark Hoffman, not just in show prep, but interest. I did a lot of research. Tons over the years. YouTube videos podcasts one night uh, one of the people that was in a podcast that I was listening to said that he remembered in the mid 80s it was probably around 84 85 watching the Dukes of Hazards on TV and you know how sometimes they'll break in on TV during you know there'll be a commercial break and then someone says what's coming up on the news before the news begins and then they go right back to the show well, apparently there's a commercial break and Michelle King, a former news anchor of Channel 2 in Salt Lake, got on the air and said, a document, uh, a document rocks the foundation of the Mormon faith. More details at 10 o'clock. I was hoping they'd put that in the video, but they didn't. Maybe they couldn't find it. But here's what I want to get at. The salamander, President Hinckley warned that the salamander may not be true. He warned about this several times, that it hasn't been authenticated. And I think the idea, the more I have looked into Mark Hoffman, I think the church was wanting to keep the, uh, these documents from getting into the enemy's hands. Because if they were real, then they had some serious thinking to do. Because Mark Hoffman just didn't do the salamander. He did a forge, he forged the third blessing that really shook a lot of people's faith up in the church historical department. And I knew a guy at BYU who was a student there saying, oh, the third blessing came out. You're going to have to make up your own mind. But President Hinckley warned several times that letter, the salamander letter, has not been authenticated. Now, it's interesting that it was authenticated after the bombs went off. And I find it interesting that Charles Hamilton realized that he made a big mistake in authenticating, I believe it was the salamander letter, one of those documents. And I'm quoting here. He said, son of a bitch, I got it wrong, end quote. Here, what Mark Hoffman did, because he had such a grudge against the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, what Mark Hoffman did was he knew the skeletons of the church very well, and so he would make up a document and study the handwriting and age ink in iodine and iron it. The reason he got caught is because one of our church members, George Throckmorton, 
found out that the ink was cracked and the ink was also running. Or I, I, yeah, the ink was, uh, yeah, the ink was running and it was cracked. I think the ink was not running and it was cracked, if I remember. I know it was cracked. And that's how ultimately he got caught. But it's interesting, the FBI even authenticated his documents after the bombing happened. It just goes to show, folks, that Satan is real and he'll do anything to deceive you. And if you go down the wrong path, you can really go down the wrong path. So the documentary I saw was very good. It's too bad that Mark Hoffman used his talents for evil. What I'm interested to know is how his dad reacted afterwards. What his dad was thinking, because Mark's dad was sticking up for him to the very end, the very end, when, he, when Mark was going to the Board of Pardons. That's when I think his dad realized Mark was not innocent. He was defending him to the very end. And I heard his dad was not the same person after that. I wonder if his dad's faith was shooken up. I wonder a lot of things about his dad. In fact, I met someone who knows his dad personally that met him, and he told me, and I think it's true, Mark Hoffman killed his dad. Meaning that Mark Hoffman's dad was in bad health, but Mark's dad died of a broken heart, not necessarily because of his health. Certainly a combination of the two, but you could probably argue that the broken heart was more of his death, was more the cause of his death than his multiple sclerosis. I'm interested to hear from Mark's mother because Mark's mom just suspected that Mark could have killed those two people. If you read the Salamander, or if you read Salamander, it briefly mentions in the book that uh, his mom, Lucille, they called her Lou sometimes, said to very close friends, I'm afraid that Mark Hoffman's guilty. I also had a uh, communications professor at the Salt Lake Community College who uh, was talking about ethics one day. This is what the professor told me. One day he was in a discussion with students about ethics. And this, somehow Mark Hoffman came up, and after the class, Mark Hoffman's nephew came up to the professor and talked about Mark in the most inhumane way as possible. Understandably so. And Mark's nephew said that when Mark was bombed, of course this is uh, before we found out that he bombed himself, the first words that uh, Mark's mom uttered was, I'm not surprised. So apparently, Mark's mom knew a little more about something that his dad either didn't know or didn't want to know or was just in plain denial. So I'd like to hear from his parents. I don't know if his mom is still alive or not. But I feel bad for Dora, his wife, his ex-wife. She probably took the brunt of it all. 
I'd like to hear her story. I, of course, it talked, you know, he talked, she talked a little bit in the documentary about the Bible issue and how she's very hurt to this day about what Mark did. And she mentioned at the end of the documentary that there's a part of her that still doesn't want to believe it. I'd like to hear Dora's whole perspective on the, on the issue. Anyway, folks, I think I'm going to come back. Uh, well, I'll come back uh, next week, talk about some other things, about single people in the LDS Church, and I am working on some guests. In the meantime, I'll talk to you later.